0: me? Richard Roundtree.
1: (sighs) I figure that's an old reference for you. Do you know who that is? No. It's the guy who played Shaft. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Also of Shaft's big score and Shaft goes
0: to Africa. Yeah, it was definitely awesome movies. Watching those movies as a kid.
1: You know that uh Isaac Hayes, he declared bankruptcy shortly after uh, writing that song? Really? Yeah. One of my first times in Memphis when I had some time, you know, there was uh two groups of people in my group, one who went to Graceland and one who went to the Stax Records Museum.
0: Uh.
1: I went to the Stax Records Museum. I did subsequently visit Graceland later and it, I do think it's great. I'm glad I got to visit both.
0: I've never been. I would love to yeah.
1: go. I mean, so cool. I was just geeking out over, you know, like, oh, this is the drum kit that is on this Otis Redding song. And like, you know, just the, right. you know, the actual tape machines. But I didn't realize it at the time because I hadn't known about Isaac Hayes. But <laughs> in this Stacks Museum is his car. Oh really? What is uh, yeah. it? Yeah, and I don't remember like what it's a, either a Buick or a right. Cadillac. You know, it's a big old right. boat. It's got like the trimmed out, you know, the wheels, the whole thing, and the to top it off, the cherry on the cake, white fur lining. Yeah, like the entire <laughs> thing lined with white fur. I took oh, like a hundred pictures of it because I was so impressed. <laughs> and. So I don't know if that was pre or post bankruptcy, you know. But <laughs>
0: they might have put him there, man.
1: Yeah, I was sitting in the middle, like on one of those car show carousels, just like cruising around. I was like, yeah. "Oh man, that's cool." It's real is... polar bear
0: fur. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, who knows? That was seventies baby. That's yeah, what put him out, know. man. That's what put him over. It yeah. was the polar bear interior, ivory
1: tusk steering wheel, <laughs> or some shit.
0: Yeah, so gangster though. I loved it. How you doing, Brad? I'm doing pretty good, sitting here in the middle of holiday week, which I guess it's good. It's better than school. If they're not going to go to school, they might as well not have any homework. So, <laughs> like, go. I've got so many projects and not getting anything done, but it's fine. I just had a a complete like Nerf gun war in the dark. Ah, oh, all right. While the la- the ladies were out doing some shopping, so Oscar and I turned off every light in the house and yes, and went for it. uh, who won? He always wins. <laughs> he <laughs> Although I got to say, he came in, we were doing it with like these, like, we had agreed to use only like single shot Nerf pistols because he's got some sick
1: stuff. Oh, he could just, yeah, he could just he's unload. He's got some like, like yeah.
0: crazy, So
1: semi-automatic so, Nerf. Yeah,
0: he finally got sick of it and he came <laughs> marching out with like the, yeah, the automatic freaking right, right,
1: right, right. machine gun. So you guys were like the old west like one shot like a standoff.
0: Yeah, it was like it was a total standoff. I was basically in surrender mode when he said like, "Oscar, <laughs> what did you say when you came in for a hug before at the end of that nerf gun battle?" <laughs> A combat.
1: <laughs> i love it i thought he gave you like a wider line like i'm your huckleberry or
0: like something like that i was oh, I like oh it. all right that's my that's guy. pretty good that's a good
1: way to lose so brad this is the last episode of
0: 2020 huh yes it is so as my wife keeps pointing out though She's like, nothing changes just because I know the, the numbers change. She goes, what I actually, it-
1: yeah, you know how I do this. You know how some like seventy five percent of the times I tweet, I like look at it five minutes later and I'm like, you're a <laughs> fucking idiot, and I delete it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> that happened just last week, where I wrote, "Can you people spare me like this twenty twenty one escape fantasy? It's starting <laughs> to drive me fucking crazy." And there is a real psychological disorder where you create escape fantasies like you won't you won't save yourself because you keep imagining that there's this like, you know, overwhelming hand or force that's going to come save you. Right. Right. That's what it feels like to me, like this this idea that just like at the stroke of midnight, you know it right. all. I, I mean, I I get the philosophical feeling of it of just like a restart. Maybe there's A brighter year or something like that. But I mean, it's like, get a fucking grip.
0: Yeah. This is what I say to her is that, look, you know, you of all people should understand that humans are, you know, of feeble mind and they need these tools. You know, they need to like, we invented time so that we could kind of keep track of shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And it's basically, yeah, it's just, it's an optimistic way of saying, okay, maybe this next uh, allotment of time will be better than. The last yeah. twelve months,
1: whatever. I the one last thing I want to get into is that I have a different <laughs> question for you. Okay, you're you've seen a lot of New Years at this point. You know what? Oh yeah, I've I've seen seventy four <laughs> New Years. So I only no, f-
0: only only six that I can actually remember.
1: <laughs> I thought it would be fun for us to each tell a New Year's story of of a. Uh, a new year's memory that stands out like something super fun or weird or interesting. I have one in mind. Do you want me to go first so you can think of one?
0: Oh, I've got a few. I just trying to think of if I actually oh, want, to say okay. if I want to say
1: any of these. Um, Oscar's in the apartment.
0: If you're ready, you go first and I'll, I'll All right, try ready. to out who I might offend.
1: Well, mine was, <laughs> so of course you remember in when the turn to the year 2000, Everyone had this scare about Y2K. Of course, you remember that. Yeah. If we have any audience members here who are a little younger, there was a growing theory that every computer code in the world couldn't handle the fact that it was going to be zero zero, yeah. and it and that apparently everything was going to break down, world economic shutdown, uh, you know, end of the world type shit. Some people were thinking about about Y2K. Um, luckily I, I didn't buy it. Uh, actually an old roommate of mine cleared out a shop vac and made something called bong 2k out of it, which that's another (laughs) podcast on its own. (laughs) But, uh, so, so we didn't buy it too much and we go down to a new year's party and me and one of my best friends, Evan, Evan Rich, still one of my best friends. We, we hatch a plan. We're at our buddy, Paul, Paul, the captain Hortensio's house. In Seaside Park, New Jersey. He's got a little beach house, his parents' beach house. We have access to it for the New Year's. I'm 19 years old at this point. Uh, You know, we're getting pretty sauced, as you do on these days. And uh, we hatch a plan. And Evan says, yo, let's cut the power to the house at midnight and just fuck with everybody. Like make them think that like Y2K actually
0: happened. And I'm like, whoa, really?
1: I'm like, and he's much smarter than me. And I'm like, how are we going to do this? He's like, I know exactly how. He's like, you go out and cause a big ruckus. Like do what you do. Especially at 19 I was just a walking tornado, you know? (laughs) And they're like, yo, he's just like, draw all the attention to you. I'm going to duck out. I'm going to feel like he did like a you know, field report around the house looking for where circuit breakers were and shit. And he's like, I'm going to duck out right when it hits zero. I'm going to pull it and you like play it, play it up, you know? (laughs) So we did exactly that. Like, like maybe a couple minutes before I'm getting everyone's attention. I'm like, here we go. Countdown. Who's got drinks, blah, blah, blah. You know, drawing everyone. Evan just ducks out because he's super sleuth. And it goes like five, four, three, two, one. (laughs) And just shuts like the entire main breaker to the house, you know. So everything zaps off, and people are like, "Yo, straight panicking." I'm serious. There were some people like, "Oh my god, oh my god, it's actually happening!" Oh my god, oh my god, what are we gonna do? Blah 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 blah. And a couple people were just like, "Uh, not, whoa, this isn't right," you know. And then, you know, before people started realizing that there's streetlights on outside and stuff. And then, But the best part of all this is my my buddy Parker walks up. The most punk rock thing I've maybe ever seen, which was he comes up to everybody. He's like, yes! Yes, it happened! (laughs) Fuck yeah! This is awesome! Anarchy! Oh my god, he was so stoked for the fall of civilization. And he might be Uh, one of the most like Cro-Magnon people I know who like would survive if it came down to like stone tools again like he'd actually be right up his alley nice. uh and then yeah eventually someone like was like wait there's a street light on why is benny laughing <laughs> you know heaven pops out of the closet people started picking up on it but we did pull one of the great hoaxes of new year's history and convince people oh, dude that y2k
0: happened i love it i love that story because that is something that i would have loved to have been a part of <laughs> what do you think you you think you would have been into it? Oh fuck yeah, dude! Well, I would have been in. I would have. That's an idea that I would have come up with. I would. Right. I love a I love a good relevant and hard to execute prank.
2: Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I
0: back you would have it.
1: hatched it. Yeah, you know how to make bonfires and stuff. I'm sure you would. Have Hell been yeah, dude! To I figure out how
0: to make how to fake it just so nicely.
1: <laughs> right, hit me with yours, because I'm picturing. Like you and Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump in like <laughs> Times Square in 1971 or something. Oh no! Actually? I've actually
0: only ever been anywhere near Times Square once, and we didn't even get within a few blocks, and ended up have, coming across some dude with like a knife wound and had to and took him had to take him to the emergency room. Oh, good. That was that was my only Times Square story, but I do I do have some. I do have some right. one or two so just, New Year's give stories, me the top. Give which me the I'm top. not going to talk about in public, including my 2001, which I'd be glad to tell you personally at some point. Okay. This is an entertainment. But get I do your, have one your, that I was <laughs> recently reminded of. It's very New York. Okay. Kind of an endless New York story. So, and you might know this place. Like a Woody
1: Allen movie. There's
0: this little bar on Houston Street called Milano's, which is a real classic hole in the wall. It's like one of those long, narrow bars, you know, barely fits like 30 people tops, right? Love it. Love it. It's been there since I moved to New York in the late 80s. And it's been exactly the same. And like every few years, you know, the latest generation of hipsters kind of discovers it and like, you know, they might pop in or meet somebody for a drink. It's never really become a like hipster hangout. And it's always the kind of place that you can go by at nine o'clock and it's got a couple old alkies in there drinking. Perfect. And anytime you go in, there's going to be a 70 year old dude like at the bar with his head on it. <laughs> right, to right. this day, it blows my mind, you know? So I like, and All I, right. you know, we discovered it back when I was, you know, when I was a ute and first moved here <laughs> Sick. And um and we would go there for drinks, you know, and, like, it was a good meeting place because it's only a couple blocks from, like, Broadway on Houston. Anyway, and it's still there, and it's still exactly the same. Like, I can't believe it. But this was a New Year's Eve. It must have been the mid or early 90s. It was pre-cell phone for sure because I was trying to hook up with a bunch of friends, including my girlfriend, and I was using the payphone at Milano's. I was okay. trying to hook up with them. So I'm, I'm sitting in the back of Milano's. It's New Year's Eve. I couldn't connect. I called them. I said, call me back at this yeah. number.
1: Back in the day when it was so easy to get lost in New York City.
0: And like their payphone was their house phone, you know, like it was right, a classic right. bar. So like, yeah. so like they could actually call me back on the payphone.
1: Okay. And right. I'm
0: waiting. I get a beer. I finish the beer. There's literally two old men sitting at the bar. One of them with his head on the bar. <laughs> Next thing I know, it's midnight. I got there maybe 1130. It wasn't like I was there for a long time. I got oh, okay. there like 1130 right. thinking like, I'm going to call these guys. I'll find out where they are.
1: Yeah, and, right. And
0: for whatever reason, it took them longer to get back to me. So I happened to be in Milan. I was at the stroke of midnight. And like, it probably was like five after midnight because the bartender, he's over like kind of wiping off glasses. He looks up. He goes, oh, hey, New Year's, guys. Happy New Year's. <laughs> and the no shit. It was like a movie. The drunk on the bar. Lifts his head off the bar, raises his glass, and says, Happy New (laughs) Year! Takes a sip and puts his head back down. Yes. (laughs) So that was my most memorable New Year's in New York with three strangers, all, like, probably over the age of 70. It's super, like, amazingly anticlimactic. (laughs) But the good news is I did eventually get through to my girlfriend and her friends. And as every New Yorker knows, like, that's... You know, midnight is basically the start of New Year's, even New York City. Right? Sure, yeah, it goes <laughs>
2: long. It
1: goes long. Oh man, I, I imagine for some reason when you said the New York story, I imagine that one of the two guys at the bar was going to be like Robert De Niro. <laughs> or like Anthony Bourdain or like something weird like that It was just there, it was like, Yeah, oh, happy New Year's. No,
0: but I think Milano's is the kind of place that has that history. Yeah, that's like, what I was thinking. Like it's yeah. it's it's really rinky dink and it's still a total dive. It's managed to to never be completely taken over by hipsters, so. Yeah. I wonder what people in Arizona do for New Year's. They go to baseball games. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, during New Year I don't <laughs> You're
1: such a nerd. There's no baseball now.
0: Come on, bro. But it's like the summertime down there, right? Because it's the south oh, yeah, side of the true. planet.
1: I did just hear, you know, 2020 was again like the hottest year on record. It tied 2016. And one of the stats that stood out to me was the Phoenix area apparently had 185 days that was over a hundred. Holy shit. Which I'm just like, what the fuck?
0: That's yeah, that's, kinda, that's some end time shit there. Ouch.
1: But I, I get a vibe, you know, what a chill, chill guy. Oh, dude. Yeah. What a chill guy Zach was. Uh, and I love talking to somebody
0: from the desert. You know, they just have a vibe. You like talking to a drummer. Come on, admit it. I thought we didn't go too heavy on drums. Yeah, uh, you went heavier on sports than drums. Oh uh, yeah, a little, a little bit, not too much. Listen, no, 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 I know no.
1: these are your biggest nightmare podcasts <laughs> when there's like a drummer who's into sports on. You're like, oh no, I'm not going to get to talk about tone no, once. Is, it's
0: you're right. It's it nothing because It doesn't get boring in any aspect. No, nah, nah, I thought we kept it good. I thought we
1: kept it good. And uh, I actually even didn't get to drop a tidbit. Apparently, Zach's dad you know actually uh had a cup of coffee up in the major leagues and was a professional baseball player for a minute but was blocked by uh Robin Yount, who wound up being you know like a 3000 hit hall of fame yeah. player so if you're going to get blocked or Ooh. you know by a by a player coming up, you know, it's <laughs> sort of a claim to fame to be like, you know what? I was behind Robin you in the depth chart. It's like, what the fuck are you going to do?
0: Yeah. You know? There's not so, much to say there.
1: Yeah. Not much to say there, but this was a fun interview. Uh, thanks for joining us just before new years. Yeah. Hmm. I hope you do some sexy time stuff tonight. Some champagne, hot tubs, bearskin rugs, <laughs> fake bearskin rugs.
0: Um, <laughs> Yeah,
1: I don't know. We should listen to this interview.
0: Let's do it. It's going on, on!
2: <laughs> uh, what's up, Benny? What's up, Brad?
1: Hey, <laughs> I We've met before at festivals, I believe, right?
2: Yeah, we played together. <laughs> um, I, I think a handful of times. I think we even yeah. uh, you did some dates in New Jersey and Philly. I think we opened up for you guys. That's right.
1: Funky couple days for me, I'm afraid, but uh, but it was awesome that you guys played. Um, so, do you like my name, Craig Council?
2: Uh, yeah, I was like a little bit confused like his, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, that's uh, that's an obscure like D back. It's funny. He was like always way more popular than he was talented.
1: Yeah, well,
2: um, I- you know, he was a gritty player. Like uh, people in Phoenix seem to like those guys.
1: I'm sure that's kind of where my head was going. I was like, well, because obviously, you know, the 2001 Diamondbacks are a a pretty pivotal team in my sports history because of the obvious. And and I was trying to think of like the coolest deep cut player on the 2001 Diamondbacks for you. But then I also knew your dad was an infielder. So I kind of started putting it together that maybe a, a gritty infielder like Craig Council would be your type of guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, he was a good player, you know. Um Tony Womack I think was on that team. Yeah, sure. I was. believe uh there's some, you know, the D-backs have a long history of sort of like the gritty underdog player. Uh, you know, there's a few that come to mind, but yeah, that, you know, I think there's those are always like the fan favorites here.
1: Is it hard for you to reconcile your Kurt Schilling
2: fandom? I'm not really because a was- fan of Kurt Schilling. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, I, it's, it's like, uh, I, I don't have a hard time. I mean, I'm not really a fan of the kind of guy he is or whatever. But, right. um, he, you know, I think political opinions from sports, people who are really good at sports, um, it doesn't really bother me. You know, it's like I'm not asking the guy who's cooking my barbecue in the South what he thinks about Trump. I'm just, <laughs> right. I'm just eating, I'm just eating the fucking food, you know, like, and so there's a sort of element to like, if someone's really good at what they do and you can appreciate that, um, you can't expect them to be, you know, like, I don't know, like, I I, I like you, whatever, you know, like take Tom Brady, for instance, like maybe he's a Trump supporter, maybe he's not, whatever. It doesn't really matter, but it's like, he's so good in one area of his life that, you can kind of forgive the other areas where, if you know, they may may have shortcomings.
1: <laughs> I can see that. I mean, you can't always be looking at your athletes as uh, moral compasses. That's a fact. Um, sure. So, but when I mean, I guess there there's got to be a line at some point, you know. Like, there's been some athletes who have been so disgusting in their personal lives that I've had to like make a choice. You know, like I can no longer support this player.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, like, and I think Kurt Schilling is just kind of, even beyond his political opinions, just not a very good person, I don't think. Yeah. So, it's like, like, it's easy to, yeah, dude. exactly. So I think that, you know, there's probably a lot of sports guys or people in the sports world who I have totally different Uh, opinions sure uh then uh you know politically but they're nice dudes you know like when push comes to shove like they're they're not like horrible human beings so yeah um and that's and we have to make space for that but um and i can appreciate like what they do on the field um but you know like it does yeah you're right it gets to a point where like okay timeout on this guy uh, you know (laughs) even if he is like uh, the reason why we have our one like (laughs) championship in the city or one Uh, of the reasons why we have a championship in the city then you know but yeah at some point there are always like you know it's it's okay to set boundaries sure
1: well it's always fraught with inconsistency too because it's like you know people would want to vilify someone like that for just kind of being like Eh, dude, you don't like his opinion, you know what I mean? Like, which I don't, I, you know, I find his opinion ugly and weird, but it's like no surprise. You know, if you put uh, that many hundreds of people from different places into the same environment, like certain guys who come from certain places are probably going to have that opinion. Like, do you remember when people went crazy, about the guy from Duck Dynasty saying some, like, you know, borderline. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck? What did you you think? What did you think Duck Dynasty guy was going to do, you know? And then people will go crazy about that. But then I watch these, like, you know, I've uh, watched Raldish Chapman on my team for the last two years who, you know, basically beat his girlfriend and shot a gun into a couch. You know, everybody's like, oh, keep throwing 102. And, you know, we don't really care so much. So...
2: Yeah.
1: It's always fraught with when you See, once you start uh, going down that road, right?
2: Sure. Absolutely. You know, and the other thing is, is that there's kind of, you know, like, I think when you're in the art world, it's in a weird way. Like, w- we oftentimes like to think that we just, you know, we scour the landscape for the correct political opinion on this thing or the correct way to, you know, be in this certain area of life. And we all think we come to these understandings without like a context that we're in, you know, and Mm -hmm. I, 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 like just being in a band and being around people who created art and created music and um, going on tour and being in a van and kind of relying on people, you know, before we were making really any money on the road I think you I I for me I started to learn and to my eyes were opened up because I was re- raised really conservatively so like mm-hmm. politically religiously and you know all of a sudden I find myself in this community of people right. where I'm kind of I'm kind of rewarded for thinking something or looking at the world differently than how I was brought up mm-hmm. and I think in in the sports world you know um a lot of these guys were raised in an environment where um a lot of more sort of traditional opinions. Uh, I guess the, I'll, I'll use the word traditional, but, you know, uh, opinions about life and maybe conservative politics and, you know, um, gender roles and, right. you know, if it's okay to be gay or not. Like a lot of these guys are, are raised in an environment where in the sports world where that's kind of normalized, you know? And, um, and so, I think that depending on where you find yourself in life it is sort of, you end up kind of adopting, you know, if I were to come out and, and say something really, uh, you know, not PC, right. Like I'd be, a lot of people would be disappointed because I've found a community with, with people who, who have right. a shared vision. Right, and right, so I, right. I, I, I find that a lot, like in sports, we kind of have to sort of take that into consideration. Like these guys come from a world where, you know, the, these, these ideas and this way of looking at the world is kind of the norm. And like, you know, uh, you're not going to find a lot of like, you know, minor league baseball players with Bernie stickers on their car, you know, you're just not going to see it.
1: But in the same way, you know, it's interesting. Cause in the same way that you, you know, like you said, you, you were raised in, in a conservative household and then got out on the road and were exposed to these things. And, But you you were open to them and you understood the landscape and you were able to adapt. You know, a lot of these athletes wind up in situations early on where they're on teams with people from all over the place, all over the world, especially baseball players, you know, like and if you're 10 years into baseball and you're still a racist or anti-immigrant or something like you've had plenty of exposure to Hispanic people. You know, you've had plenty of exposure to that and you still decided, you know, to make that delineation. So I always um, have a hard time reconciling that stuff, Like, like when and where you draw the line with athletes. It's like I used to fight people all the time on the idea that, hey, Screwdriver wrote great songs. And I'm like, well, listen, I can't listen to Screwdriver because, you know, they probably want like me and my family dead. Uh, so I've been able right. to make that delineation with music and it's like this overwhelming sports fandom. It's like, it's so big that even though, you know, like one of these guys is a piece of shit, you kind of still, it's like a little harder to pull back like your fandom, you know?
2: Yeah. Cause he's like our piece of shit, you know, like he's <laughs> on our team yeah. and so it's easier to, it's easier to, to justify it. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, I can't listen to Michael Jackson anymore. You know, right. and like yeah, exactly. I, it's like I, um, you know, and that's a bummer because like y- you can observe, you know, the the songwriting skill of of Screwdriver. I mean, like objectively, Michael Jackson was a musical genius and yes. and a, and a, and, a, and a just an entertainment genius in general. But yeah, I mean, I can't. Like there there is sometimes a, a point in time where you have to say okay, I just can't like even throw this dude's, even though he's dead and gone, I'm not going to throw this dude's estate, like the half a cent (laughs) that I'm going to get from listening to a song on Spotify, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's tricky. I feel like, uh, you, you know, this is something we talk a lot about on the podcast, especially these days is like, you know, cancel culture and who deserves to be put down and who deserves redemption and why. And like, you know, and, uh, you know, how much do you forgive like the trespasses of the past and stuff like that? And I think everybody's been kind of coming to terms with where they sit on that, you know, in the last couple of years. Like, um, like you follow sports so closely, you know, how many instances have come out in the last couple of years of a kid getting drafted into like the NFL or the MLB? And then they dig up some tweet from when they were like 14 years old saying like the dumbest shit. Um you know, I don't care about that. I truly, right. you know what I mean? Like, I've made the decision that, like, if I had Twitter when I was 14 years old and this culture existed, I probably would have been fucking canceled. I would have said some <laughs> crazy-ass shit, you yeah. know, like, like you know, about the, the burning American flags or, like, throwing white people in an ocean like the way I was when I was, like, a 14-year-old punk, you know? I would have been canceled in a second. So, you got to... Uh, where do you draw the line, Zach?
2: I think that's a good question. I think for me, like, yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, like, for instance, the Coyotes just drafted uh, a guy who um, it wasn't just even the, his first. Old, I think he was the first round pick. And um, oh, wow. I, for, I forget his name, but the Arizona Coyotes drafted him. And, like, immediately uh, he had a history of bullying uh, another kid in his mm. in his in his grade and when they looked into it um i think what kind of sunk this guy wasn't necessarily that he did what he did when he was in high school it was sort of his reaction to it in the present and almost uh, kind of like right. sure. you know and and not necessarily owning and, and acknowledging hey yeah what i did was fucked up and he's like you know down yeah kind of like not really you know saying the right things and And um, or expressing remorse. And so I think for me, it's like that, you know, if it's something where someone is routinely like Ryan Adams, for instance, right? Um, Right, The singer songwriter, like, you know, he had a routine behavior of targeting people and and putting, you know, and, and taking advantage of people and using his position. That to me is like, okay, that crosses the line because it's like not just a mistake you make in like a tweet or whatever. It's, it's like, you're, you're sort of do, you're, you're making a habit of something. right? And to me, that's a big, that's a big, uh, you know, people can make mistakes. I say dumb stuff online all the time. Right. Um, yeah. you know, and you can, you can cancel me and not listen to whatever, but I, I, I get that. But like, if, if, If I've done something to hurt someone and then I'm like, oh, well, that was cool. I'm going to do that again. Right, Um, right, right. Then I think that's kind of where we draw the line. Yeah. So, I mean, so
1: much of it's just that personal decision about, uh, I guess, when you decide somebody actually learned from their mistakes. It was kind of Louis C.K.'s problem, right? Like, he may have had a path back if he handled that in a different way and took things on in a different way. But he sort of doubled down. And now nobody wants anything to do with them. Um,
2: It's yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Yeah, it's it's a good point. You know, like I think people are you know, especially in the U.S., I think people are really pretty open to people being like, "Hey, I I fucked up, and I shouldn't have done any of that stuff," and you know, and just kind of the only thing the only thing that can kind of back them up going forward is just how they behave and how they frame what it is they've done and, and what they're standing behind, um, in what they've done. And, and, and if you can't even just do that, then it's sort of like, yeah, I I think there's maybe some sort of, I think guys like Louis CK and a lot of entertainers and sports people have like a dysmorphia when it comes to. Hey, like, yeah, you're a big deal. People really like what you do and you're super talented, but you also are like accountable, right? Um, to act a certain way, just like anyone else. And, um, just because you think you're hot shit or whatever doesn't really give you a pass or make it okay. You know,
1: there's one other path. There's the Kobe Bryant path, which is pay it off and deliver three more rings and no one will ever talk about it again. <laughs> That's the real, that's the real America right there.
2: <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a valid point. A very valid point.
1: Rings. Rings makes everyone forget. Bring the city a ring. Ah, we didn't see anything. I, I want I wanted to talk about something I, I was listening to an interview with you about where, again, like we noted, you, you came from a more conservative background, but you were uh, taken every summer to where your father was playing baseball um and apparently in some sort of um in some sort of way your your exposure to the parks and the people and the music you were here and there kind of connected you in a way to rock and roll right because you weren't weren't really allowed to to access it at home is is that right
2: yeah um that's that's pretty much right i mean yeah i think that um there's kind of like this juxtaposition r- being raised in a pretty like uh, conservative religious background and then spending time in a minor league ballpark um, and not only spending time with people at the park, but also players, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. just kind of, you're sort of exposed to this adult world that even as a kid, like I'm the coach's kid and they probably are annoyed by me, annoyed, annoyed (laughs) that I'm around, (laughs) but what are they going to, what are they going to do? Like in the minor leagues, I feel like players don't really have a whole lot of say of what's going on and Mm. Um, so I, you know, in a weird way, like my brother and I were bat boys and just worked at the park or did whatever and yeah. was around the team all the time. And, you know, it's, it's definitely like an exposure I feel like to like the real world hmm. and, um, and not this sort of like, you know, kind of religiously sealed off bubble that we were in, in the other, uh, other times when we weren't on the, uh, out with my dad. So Right. And then, yeah, and then just hearing the music, you know, like just when their teams are taking BP or, you know, even in between innings. And, like, I remember, it's funny, there was, like, uh, this group of relievers on my dad. My dad was managing a double A team for the Reds in Vermont. Okay. Um, called the Vermont Reds in Burlington. And nice. my dad had a handful of guys in the bullpen who were kind of like these, you know, minor league wild reliever characters, you know? Okay. Um yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And, uh, and so they convinced my dad that they wanted to do like air guitar during the <laughs> seventh, like in the seventh inning stretch to, uh, scorpions uh rock me like a hurricane right of
1: course yes and
2: so they they, (laughs) you know i i remember when back in the day when uh players would play they'd have like the sanitary socks like the 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 the, the, like really thin white socks you know that weren't even socks they were just kind of like they then they would wear the actual stirrups over these socks i see well they got they put those over their face like masks um, and then they got bats and they just basically did air guitar to, to the scorpions. And I decided this is so strange. Like this shit was so not fly at my house, but like, you know, these players are doing it and it was just funny. And like, and as a kid, I'm thinking, man, that song sounds really cool. Like what is that? You know? And and so um, for sure that was a bit, that was a big aspect of uh, just learning about music in a lot of ways.
1: So, I'm just envisioning in my head, like, these three relievers. They kind of all look like the power hitter on the Yankees from Major League, right? Like, did they all have mullets? What was Um, the vibe (laughs) of these guys?
2: Yeah. You know, I'm trying to remember their names. I I, I don't – I think there was one guy named – his name was Mike Condor, which is such a funny name. Oh, that's perfect. And, yeah, like, I think one of the guys had, like, a perm – and then one dude, I, yeah, they were all basically kind of the more rough around the edges type players. Um, and it's funny because like my dad, he he managed Norm Charlton, he managed Rob Dibble, okay, um, in the minor leagues. Wow, and had really? A lot, had, had a lot of those like young Red Skies, um, huh? Uh, that you know it's crazy on that team. Uh, Paul O'Neill was on that team. Uh, Chris Sabo, yeah, Barry Larkin, wow. um, yeah. They they little Eric they, Davis?
1: They, little Eric Davis, maybe?
2: Yeah. I think yeah. Joe Oliver Joe Oliver ah. Eric Davis. Eric Davis was already in the big leagues at that Yeah, point. he was like straight up, yeah. But um my dad had a really good team. He won the they he won the Eastern League Championship two years in a row. Hmm. And it's funny because in the in the like the the Burlington had a celebration for the team. And at the time, Bernie Sanders was the mayor of Burlington. So like when they had the big uh you know party for the team winning their championship, my dad got to meet Bernie Sanders. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. That's old school.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny.
1: Uh, so listen, Mike Condor does exist. Uh, and get this, he's in the William Patterson University Baseball Hall of Fame, which is in New Jersey. So I think your boy, Mike Condor, was a uh, an, an old Jersey boy. He graduated in 1977. This adds up.
2: I cannot believe I remember that name right. Yeah, um,
1: it, it looks like you're a catcher. He says he was a catcher, but that was in college, so he might have switched by the time he got to the pros.
2: Yeah, but that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I don't know something. You know, it might have been it could have been Mike Conderla. Okay, <laughs> so I don't know. We'll have to something along those lines. I I, I don't remember, but um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm drawing a blank on some of the names.
1: Uh, it's really funny though. And do you like, besides red Scorpion, so I, like, I was wondering, you know, it said you were going every summer where your dad was and doing a lot of traveling. And I know I'm, or I just would imagine like a minor league situation. You're not, you know, staying in five star hotels or traveling in a certain way. Do you think doing that when you were a kid kind of set you up for touring at all? Like you think you're really ready to hit the road when the time came and a little less freaked out by it maybe because of your background?
2: Yeah, I think that that had, uh, I think it definitely an impact, um, on me, uh, like just seeing like traveling in the, like in the minor league bus from town to town, I've taken the minor league bus and slept up on the luggage racks in between, you know, so yeah, I think that definitely kind of got me prepared, um, for it just kind of experience. You know, I think the other thing that really kind of, uh, helped me and understand the grind of it, you know, like what the players would have to go through emotionally, physically, Mm. what they'd be, you know, they're chasing, just getting to that next level. You know, they just want to get to the next level. They're working their ass off and, and they're working, they're, they're working really hard in circumstances that aren't glamorous, you know? And, uh, I think that definitely had an impact on me for sure. Mm.
1: And when you're doing like the stor- the touring for like static prevails, are you in your head being like, "All right, we're single A right now, but you know <laughs> we're working our way up
2: I didn't make the direct comparison <laughs> uh you know at the time, I was like, this is rad, like we're on tour right. and yeah, um yeah, yeah. so there was a kind of like naivety uh naivete that we had uh um and I think kind of you can only have when you're that young. And, um, just stoked to be out doing something and playing, playing show, even though the shows were like piss poorly attended, like, course, like yeah. maybe the sound guy was there, maybe a bartender's buddy was there. That was kind of it. That's amazing. So what's,
1: what's going on, uh, with you at home? You're, you're in Mesa, Arizona, right?
2: So I, I grew up in Mesa. I live in Phoenix, which is just like, okay. uh, next to two, it. yeah, just kind of two towns over. Sure. It's all kind of the, it's kind of the big area. It's all kind of the the same metropolitan area. But um, yeah. Um, and just yeah, living in Phoenix and waiting to do some touring.
1: Yeah. So what's your uh, what's your day to day been like the the last few months? I know you got some kids, and uh, so so how are you? How are you setting up your day? What's what's your routine like?
2: Well, you know, we're just um, don't have too much of a routine. We're like Arizona has been a, a really kind of a hotspot for right. most of uh from basically middle of june on and um we had a little bit of a an improvement in the in the fall and um did a little bit of flag football coaching No oh, cool. um and when when things were better uh and you know the band's been busy we've been like rehearsing and and so and practicing uh for like the last three months so mostly it would be getting up and kind of hanging out with the kids getting the kids uh ready for school and then heading out to the studio and working and then coming home and but we just we just wrapped finishing uh we filmed three concert films right and that's the phoenix sessions yeah that's the phoenix sessions so and and we just sort of wrapped that up. And oh, cool. now that that's done, like the schedule is a little more different as we're you know, not going down to the studio quite as much. And, um, you know, just trying to be around and available for, you know, the family life being, you know, trying to be in dad mode.
1: Sure. Do you
2: guys uh, own a space
1: in Phoenix? How, how do you guys get together and practice?
2: So we rent a, we rented the same, uh, little sort of warehouse space in Tempe, uh, for the past, I don't know, uh, almost, almost 20 years now. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. That
1: must be like a second home pretty lived
2: in. It's very lived in. It's a total (laughs) fucking wreck and it's a disaster, (laughs) but it's like, but it's great. I mean, it, it works. We, um, you know, it sounds really good there. Uh, we, we can rehearse, we can write, um, we can do everything we need to do there. And it's, it's, it's just been a nice place to have like a home base. And how far from your home is it? It's like 15 minutes. Not bad. That's I feel like perfect.
1: everything in Phoenix, Tempe or Mesa is always 15 minutes away every time I've been there.
2: It's kind of like that, you know, <laughs> um unless you're going like, you know, uh we kind of picked the spot so that it would be central okay. to the valley and and like Tempe is 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 positioned as kind of the center point. ASU is kind of right in the middle of the entire valley, and uh, we have some guys who live, um, you know, kind of more south of Phoenix, and then Jim and I live in Phoenix, so we kind of meet in the middle.
1: That's awesome. Now, I want to ask some background to your drumming, because, I mean, I I don't know if I managed to stick my nose up your ass when I met you at festivals, but, (laughs) you know, you were an R, an influence on my own drumming. And something cool has happened in the last few years, which is my lovely niece, Thea, uh, has also become a drummer and a pretty big fan of your drumming. Oh, nice. That's cool. uh, uh, Brad, are we queued up for this? Can, Can you hook me up here? I think we can make it happen. All right. So, Zach, this is from my beloved niece. I'm Thea Horowitz. I'm 12 and in seventh grade. And I've been playing drums for about four years. What kind of drumming were you doing when you were around 12 years old?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) Well, hi. Nice to meet you. Uh, Nice to hear your voice. (laughs) Not really meet you, but nice to to hear your voice. Um, So when I was 12, I had been drumming for probably a little bit less than you. I think you probably started earlier than me. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I was, I think, in the seventh grade as well, in that seventh grade window. I was really not playing in bands at all. Um, I was learning how to play drum set, and I was playing in the school band. Okay. Uh And I was also, I started playing in the jazz band um at school. Uh, and it's funny, because even then, when I was that young jim our singer from jimmy world i he and i were friends and went to the same uh middle school and um jim and i actually went to preschool together so we knew each other (laughs) from that 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 long ago but he would bring his guitar he would bring over his ibanez and crate half stack okay and we would and we would rip it up in my in my room playing like you know Muddling our way through like various Metallica sections of songs, yes, yes, and so you know, kind of figuring it out and learning things. Um, you know, by that time, I could kind of listen to more music and uh, was sort of getting really into U two. So I was like learning U two songs, and um, but mostly I was like practicing a lot in my in my bedroom on my drum set. Uh, I took. Um, lessons. My really good teacher, I think I stopped taking lessons from him then um, because he went off to college. And so, yeah, I was just kind of really digging in, learning drum set, uh, but also playing in the school band and playing drum set in the school jazz band.
1: And then just jamming with with Jim. Was Jim like, was he like a ripper already? Was he kind of like a little rock and roll kid or...
2: Jim was a ripper man, like from <laughs> like uh you know he would he was that's when he was like bringing over v h s tapes of like inway mom scene and <laughs> uh it, Jim is also kinda like he would show me music that i just wasn't i didn't even have access to, right like I remember um. Just he, you know, he brought he he brought over to my house one time this like VHS of Ministry playing, and it I was like totally oh, blew my mind. Yeah,
0: I can
2: imagine. <laughs> it's like the Ministry concert where they have like the chain link fence up, and yeah, like, like I was a, just like, whoa, that's scary. I do not a want to go there. Terrifying
1: show, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: But uh, so Jim was always kind of a little bit more, I think, in the know than I was. He was he was definitely more of like a. Uh, just, I think, devour of all things music and always finding like obscure things to show me. Um, and yeah, so, but he was always an amazing, I think he took lessons young. He started very young. Okay. Um, and has always been just like the, you know, by far the best at his instrument of anyone in our band, and it's not close. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So he kind of led you, led you all down the dark path a little bit.
2: Sort of, kind of. <laughs> I mean, like a little bit. By the time we started playing in the Jimmy world, we, uh, maybe a little bit less so, you know. Um, but yeah, but but definitely, like he. Uh, I think the thing that we've always, we've never lost is like we're always like even now we think about it. Um, we're kind of like just. We always have that, like Metallica, uh, Master of Puppets, and Justice for All, like kid inside of us that wants to, like, you know, that sort of secretly wishes, like, we were in that band. But you definitely
1: um, hear the riffs every once in a while. Because every once in a while, I listen to Jimmy World. I'm like, that's pretty fucking metal riff,
2: you know? Exactly. We do have little. We do have a little like metal kid uh, deep inside of us somewhere.
1: Ah, we all do.
0: So I think there was kind of a part two to this question. You may have actually addressed it.
2: What was your first band
1: called and who was in it? Also, what age were you when you started your first band?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. It's a really good question. Um, Thea, love you, Thea. These are great great questions. You're the best. Very good. Yeah, she needs to get her own (laughs) own podcast. Um, And this space is
1: getting a little crowded, Zach. (laughs) I don't know if you know that. You know? Hey, Thea, back up. Maybe do something else, sweetheart. Okay.
2: (laughs) Uh, So I think it was my sophomore year in high school is when I kind of started playing in my first band. Um, I met a guy in high school. He was a senior and I was a sophomore and his name was Kevin Lane. Mm -hmm. And um, then there was another guy and I forget his name. I want to say his name is Theo or something like that. And we started a band and we... Um, brought in a guy named Trey, who I'm so friends with today. Um, and he was our bass player, amazing bass player. And we were called No Longer Plaid, so I was probably, <laughs> I was probably sixteen, seventeen, something around
1: there. Was that like a post ska, anti
2: ska kind of reference? No, I don't know what the name came okay. from. We were very, we were very much like, um. A sort of punk rock version of REM. Oh, okay, it's
0: fun. Yeah, the name works
1: for that. Yep. And how long, how long did that last for?
2: That didn't last long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, I think at some point, uh, we added. I I I I had that band kind of like splintered off and disintegrated a little bit, and then I added. I brought Tom in. Mm, okay. Um, to play with me because I met Tom through those guys. Tom, we started playing playing with me and Trey and Tom and Kevin would play together. And then that kind of our bass player Trey, who's a really good bass player, left our left our um our band for Greener Pastures, We We're like a band that was actually like gigging and oh, okay, you know. And so then that sort of left us in a in a position where Tom and I were just kind of like, "Well, what do we do now?" Right. And so I said, well, let's, let's give Jim a call. He was all, Jim was already playing in another band but was like, Hey, let's see if he wants to join and he can just do double duty. And that's kind of how Jimmy world started.
1: So it really formed like towards the end of high school. like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. uh, cool. senior year, was when we really, uh, middle of senior year.
1: Well, I, you mentioned you too before, which was an interesting reference because I mean, I know even though they were uh, an influence for you musically, you know, one of the things that always stands out about Jimmy Eat World to me is like, you know, your your longevity and um, and the way you guys operate your business, cutting it up equally, which is something you two does too. And I know a lot of bands have tried to do what you all have done. You know, essentially just longevity with the same unit of people and consistently good albums and music through the years. So, what's uh, what's the formula? What's your (laughs) tricks, you know, like (laughs) a lot of people want to know like what you found because it's one of the more impossible tasks uh, I've seen a band, a band do, especially an American band. Um, So, so what's been, what's been some tools for you all uh, to, to make that happen? Um, How do you communicate with each other? You, You know, what are some insights on, on how that operates?
2: Man, that's a good question. You know, I think it's, it's a funny question for us because it, it's like we, we see it from the other way around. Um, mm. our, our sort of response, is like, how do you fuck this up? You know, like, <laughs> right. you know, yeah, like what's uh-huh. that? Sure. And, but, I, and I'm sure that there's a lot of, you know, we're lucky. I think, first of all, I think we've been really lucky. Um, I think that's the biggest factor. Uh, second of all, I think like, how things start makes a big difference. And mm. the way we started was just like, Hey, we're four guys having fun in a garage. And, um, like we set small goals. So like yeah. our first goal, like in the garage, like, Hey, let's open up, let's play a show or open up for somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we do that. And like, Oh, it'd be cool to do like a recording and just let's do a recording. So we just always on to the next thing of like, okay, what's the next goal and like and then we'd start like we start got we we started getting to the point in our local market where we were making relationships with promoters where like let's say Sebado was coming through we'd be like hey we want to open up for Mm Sebado. like let us open up and so they we were big enough to where we they'd let us come and open up and we could be like a local opener um we got to open up for rancid and got to open up for um you know a, a bunch of different bands that came through, and so just do that. And uh, you know, I think in in the long run, I think yeah, I think um, it's 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 really looking at it as a unit, um, looking at it as everyone has a contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of mistake, a lot of mistakes that people make in bands, and you know, even um, you know, it's like you can't always look at what people, what different band members contribute to a band in terms of like just pure workload or measuring mm-hmm. it in certain ways. Like that gets, I think, a lot of bands tripped up. Right. Um, you know, we don't really look at it that way. Uh, mm. I think that, um, I think we, you know, in some ways you can look at, um, just, I, you know, like, like, for instance, a really good example of this is, um, you know, Rick is an awesome bass player and, and an even better dude, right? And you know, and Rick is like an enthusiast, right? And if you come up with an idea, Rick will be like, "Oh man, that idea sounds awesome. Let's do it!" Right, 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 right. right. You know, and a lot of people when they're not in a relationship with like a collective of four guys. Yeah. Um, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily look at like what Rick's doing as like a role in the band. Right. But it's like, that's almost as important as like the dude who's like, Hey, you know, let's go do this, this and this and this. And then, then we're going to do this after that. And then we're going to, then we're going to play this song and then we're going to make this record. And then we're going to go on tour. Like you kind of need, um, A balance of that and the cool thing about that is is we respect each other to where like when rick says hey you know what that doesn't sound like the best idea right like it it means a lot it's like okay if rick's antenna is going up is like that's not a very good idea Yeah, because
1: he's so consistently stoked that
2: yeah and it's like and so i just think like the fact that a we give each other space to be who we are Mm -hmm. Um, and we also respect each other to recognize, um, like in a lot of ways, like I just will run my mouth and say, we need to do this. And I, or I'll like get on someone or I'll, you know, I'm like the sort of alpha male in the band. Right. Yeah. And these guys let me be me. You know, and they and, and they're really patient with me, right? Yeah, and over right. and over time, what I've realized is they're—I realize more and more—they're being really patient with me. You know, <laughs> and as I, as I get older, like, right. you know, I think, man, I could let a, I could let a, the gas off the pedal a little bit and right. and make more room and and give other people a space to you know like create a vacuum so that they feel comfortable filling it. Mm. Um. And so I just think over time, we've kind of learned that we trust each other. We respect each other. um, And like, there's hardly ever really like major, like volatile disagreements, hardly ever. So and cool. I, I would also say a huge, huge part of it is Jim. Right. Um, yeah. Jim is just a unique dude. Uh You will not find very many front men or guys who are you know like without a doubt like you know when we're like if you think of us as like a peloton right jim is the lead writer in the peloton right
1: yeah and
2: and we're drafting off of him creatively in a lot of ways and so so i think us recognizing that um and then us saying hey when can we spell him or when can we say hey jim uh, we don't need to worry about this stage you know let 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 you know Tom or Zach or Rick take the lead and right. and like you know we, we're there to protect him from burning out or whatever mm. and so I think that's kind of a good analogy for us is um you know that Jim is in that role as that lead writer in the peloton but he um, he really does truly interact and give everyone space in the band to be them be, yeah. be themselves and and to and to not freak out about what all of our limitations might be or, you know, and, and I've always felt like that's a key. If if you have a front person who is not there to serve like the group, you know, um, and not, and not understand that, like, Hey, the, 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 the extra maybe work that you do in some ways that you can benefit from that. Right. So like if, like there's a you're building a benefit, but you may not be seeing it like in the dollars and cents. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like for instance, it's like if Jimmy World blows up and we we never do anything again, like it's gonna be a lot easier for, for Jim to like have a career in music
0: and <laughs> right? um, yeah,
2: be yeah. more successful than than it would be for me, right? Sure. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but at the same time, like. Um, how things start matters. And like, you know, when we first started, like Jim was just kind of like, okay, we're going to bring Jim in as like, you know, the, this extra dude we need, you know, Tom was our singer. Yeah. Tom was our front guy. Sure. And, um, and he was the singer
1: on what like half a static prevails, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And so, and then over a course of time, like we just sort of saw like, wow, Jim is just like, yeah, right. If you go, yeah, I think you can look listen to our first demos on YouTube, where Jim is singing his first songs, and you know, and then you listen to what he's doing now, and um, it's like the difference is astronomical. Sure, and and like you know, um, and he's such a fantastic performer, yeah. singer, and artist all the way through that, you know, and that just sort of happened over the course of time within the life of the band, and it's been fun to see but you know um i think it's just sort of helped us be centered and uh just i think we we just operate like a an equal like a sort of a democracy
1: yeah super cool i love that i, I mean now i i now i don't know if you've ever considered this element of it but I, you know i was reading an interview where you know all four of you come from families that are still together. Have you ever considered yeah. like maybe sociologically like your your mindset are people who kind of know how to stick through things that are difficult and not bail like potentially maybe because of like the solid like family foundations you had? Not to say there are no problems in a in like a you know couple who's still together can present its own problems in a million ways. But um, as far as just like not running away from, uh, you know, something that's hard and actually seeing your way through it, does that example maybe played a role? You think?
2: I think that probably uh, has some sort of difference. Um, You know, um, it, it, I think it, I think it, it, it might have something to it. Um, I I think it has a lot more to do with just the personality mix, um, that we have.
0: Right.
2: Um, but I think that, that, you know, I think our personalities are probably formed a lot by that stability growing up and, um, you know, like it's easier, I think to maybe have that if you, if you grow up in a home where maybe your parents had a contentious relationship and they didn't make it and, you know, and that has that there's a sort of like volatility in that relationship. It might make it harder to trust people. And so I, I think that might, that might play a part, but um, you know, I think it's a combination of luck, oh yeah, a, a mixture of our personalities and like the fact that, you know, we've been able to achieve some financial success that has allowed us just to keep going. You know, we can sure. make a life for ourselves and our families and, you know, we don't have to quit. To go find a real job that can actually pay the bills. And we've been lucky enough to like pay the bills with this. And yeah. there's a lot of bands out there that were worked just as hard as us, if not harder, were just as talented as us that just didn't have um, I think, that sort of component of luck that sure. we had. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there's something it's funny to watch, right? When you see I mean, I even saw it after you guys, you know, like uh you become extremely successful and then every label tries to find their Jimmy world, you know, and and everyone's trying to figure out the formula. What is the formula? And like, it's just always this, this mixture of a hundred thousand variables that no A&R guy could ever recreate, you know, like, like you got to find these things that are just, it's impossible to recreate because it's so many, so many elements put into one. Right.
2: Yeah. I think it's, you know, I think it, it's such a big mistake, I think, to try and listen to a band that's doing well and then find something that's like, oh, well, let's find something that's just like yeah, it. Yeah, that's the dumbest shit. Um, because you're not, you know, at some point, uh, you ha- I think this is sort of another maybe component of longevity is just being honest about who you are, trying to be true to yourselves and like not um, chasing some outcome. Right. You right, know, like,
0: right, right. And I
2: think... We, I think we, for whatever reason, I think we learned and, and, and continue to kind of like stress that idea of, you know, we want to push ourselves, but at the same time, um, we want to try new things and do, and, and, and do something that challenges us, but we don't want to chase something for the sake of chasing it. Right. And I think what, you know, I think people can kind of hear that in the music sometimes. Like when you're chasing it, it's not, it's not true to who you are. It's not, you're not being authentic and you come off as being forced. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we've always tried to avoid um and ride that line of, of still being us, but doing something we enjoy and, and, and appreciate, but then like pushing the, pushing, you know, the limit a little bit here and there when we feel like musically it makes sense.
1: Right. Totally. Nah, and you mentioned Jim as far as, you know, his role in uh, you know, being a, a, a good uh artistic leader in the way that, you know, he allows everyone in, everybody has their space and he's not a dick about it. Um, but I was wondering about you, you know, when when you know the middle breaks and you guys are this, you know, massive band all around the world, um did you ever have to, it was a problem I had, so I'm projecting my own problems on you out of curiosity. Um, like, have you ever had to reconcile the idea that like the drummer is not recognized as much for the success of what's happening? Like, have you ever had to battle with staying level-headed and without, without getting as much uh, credit, credit for the the things that are happening publicly I know internally you were getting, you know, the credit you needed, but maybe externally, did you ever feel like a void there?
2: I never, I've never struggled with that. I've never worried about that or... It's awesome. Worried about that. I mean, yeah, it's not something that I've really considered or even considering it, you know, it's just the way it is, you know, like... Right, yeah. if, If I, there's lots of bands that I love, you know, that I listen to, on a weekly basis that if their drummer walked past me on the sidewalk, I wouldn't have <laughs> yeah. any fucking clue who he <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah. you know? For so sure. it, for sure. it's just, it's part of it, you know? And I think that there's part of some, and to me, I've always sort of thought of it as like a benefit,
0: mm.
2: um, you know, not like we're getting, um, not like we're getting, uh, you know, recognized all over the place, but like that rarely happens for me. And so um, uh, that definitely something that, you know, it happens a lot more to Jim than it does to me. And so, right. you know, I, I see it as kind of like a benefit, you know? Sure. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it doesn't really leave a sour taste in my mouth at all.
1: That's awesome. You're obviously a more well-adjusted person than I am.
2: Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> well, I think it has, to, I think it has a lot to do with though, your <laughs> relationship with your bandmates, you know, right, right, and right, I think right. that, um, you know, and I think that there, I think that relationship is more important and more grounding than like what other people might think or say. Because ultimately, like, if you're a drummer and you want the same amount of credit from like Joe Blow, who's commenting on your YouTube videos, you know, like, you know, in, on your band site, like you're not going to get that. Right. But, right. but, um, I think if you don't get it from your band or, um, you know, and, that that is a that would be a a much tougher pill to swallow.
1: Yeah, right. right. Right, right. That makes perfect sense. Now, so The Middle Breaks, right? It's one of the biggest songs in the world, right at that time. <laughs> what's uh if you can recall, what's like the craziest spinal tap type thing that happened during that time? Like what was like the biggest silly surprise of having a song that big?
2: Man. Um, I think for us it was, it was playing on us and Al mm. and like having Cameron Diaz come into like our <laughs> dressing room and say hi. And we're like, wait, what the fuck is going on here?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Uh,
2: that was, that was sort of like, um, and then just freaking out about like, man, this is really like the East coast feed of this is really live, you know? And like, <laughs> right, that, right. Was, that was, that was like nerve wracking. That was a very nerve wracking experience. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the moment that comes to mind. I think just being like the ages that we are, growing up with SNL and that being such a big deal to us, and the, like our age, like sort of our generation.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, you know, that was definitely probably the the moment where we were like, "Whoa, this is sort of strange that we're here doing this." That's awesome. Now,
1: like uh, drum wise. You know you you've never really been a stranger to sampling even even early on in Gme world and adding that element. when did you when did you adopt um, kind of getting into that sort of thing and what what bands were kind of uh, lending you th- that way?
2: Like sampling like just like in what way do you mean?
1: Like using um you know using uh, you know a sampled sound in a song. Um, oh yeah. You know, changing, you know, drastically changing the sound of the drums for, you know, a bridge going into the chorus, or like, yeah, you sure. seem to always have this real like body and and uh, a little bit of a, especially for the scene we came from, you know, like you guys were doing splits with uh, Sensefield and Mineral and yeah. you know, bands like that who weren't going anywhere near stuff like that. So where was that coming from for you?
2: I think we've always tried to use kind of the studio as like an instrument, you know, and mm. um, for us, uh, sometimes musically it makes sense for things to not be performed. And so um, mm. I think it was for, it was like, you know, uh, on Bleed American, we would, we used a lot of samples, uh, but they were always samples that we recorded ourselves. Right, so it was right, like right. very, I don't think we've ever yeah. used, like samples from some other source other than something we're tracking. Cause a lot of times we're trying to achieve a sound and then we use that sound in a loop Mm -hmm. um, and we'll sample it. Um, You know, we, uh, we've done stuff with drum machines in the past. Um, I mean, I think for us, it was just a combination of, it's, it's probably a combination of trying to serve the song or, Sometimes it's even getting a new toy and like, oh, this is cool. I can we write <laughs> right. something on this, and then it's like, oh, that it's a song, you know? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, being open to that, uh, not always thinking, oh, well, we can't do that because there's a, you know, there's a, you know, a rule or whatever that. Like for us, it's always been about figuring out the best way to make the song, executing each song in a way that makes it have the most impact and sometimes, you know, putting on the six and doing something different is, is necessary.
1: Yeah. Cool. Now, do you remember how, and how you wrote the groove for sweetness? That is one of my favorite grooves of all time. And I was wondering if you remember uh, what, what the writing of that, what the writing of that song was like.
2: So I don't even think like, I don't even think I wrote that. I think Jim wrote that. Oh, wow. Um, I think, um, or you know what? I think Jim wrote like, you know how like guitar players sit down and play drums Mm -hmm. and it sounds like a guitar player is playing drums. It's (laughs) weird. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do. I do. (laughs) But, you know, that's something that I've always like, Jim is not a great drummer. Right. But he's, he's a good enough drummer to come up with things that are, that are kind of interesting. Mm. And I think my beat on that is a sort of translation of a demo, like Jim kind of doing a very chaotic version of that. Um, and um, so my beat is sort of like a, 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 a maybe a cleaned up, nicer version of that, uh, of Jim's sort of original idea. Because we originally um, were going to put that on Clarity.
1: Oh, okay. And
2: um, oh. he it was like one of those things where you have the album in the can and then Jim had like this moment of like, you know, oh, hey, let's do this. But yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know this, but Jim comes up with a lot of drum parts in Jimmy World. And it's a lot of it is like me kind of reinterpreting it or me. Um, sometimes I totally get rid of it and I do something completely different. But right. it's cool because um, he oftentimes will do something that would have never have occurred to me to do. Right. And I'd be like, Oh, that's weird. And then it would like I and I'd like, well do I do I do I do it just like that or do I translate it a different way and um or do I kind of alter it or so um that happens all the time. I have to I have to do that stuff all the time. Interesting. But um there's even one song. Uh, there's a song on Invented, the title track of Invented. Um, Jim played uh, a demo to, it. and it's a really slow song, and um, it's kind of a slow bummer song. And <laughs> but it like Jim played the the drums to it on the demo and there was like this really cool character of how he played them and i was like dude we should keep there's a the beginning of the song is really mellow and then the end of the song kind of explodes into this really loud rock sound so i was like you should we should keep your drums for the first part and then i'll just come in oh cool you know and i think it's like in the bridge i come in and it's like um i think it's really interesting because it's like sometimes you know when drummers when people who aren't drummers play drums there's a kind of weird uh, quality to it yeah, that c- yeah, sure. can cr- creatively be almost a little bit more. I don't know. It's like it's almost like it was like less assuming and almost hesitant and and I thought, man, that's a really good vibe for the for the beginning of the song. Let's keep it. So right. he actually plays drums on the final on the final album. He, that's him playing.
1: I could. That's awesome. I I could see where that's helpful now that you mention it because I I listened to some things I wrote when I was younger. Uh, and I realize I'm like, well, this is, it's a terribly wrong part. Everything about it is wrong, but it's cool. But all these years of, you know, cumulative experience writing songs mean I would never write this part on my own again. You know, like I've gotten too, too pro to like write something so weird, you know, and I I could see we're having that, that outside influence in that way. could be,
0: it takes a lot of. A lot of confidence to to appreciate that, you know? I mean that I think what that right there, that example gives me a lot of insight into kind of the question that Benny had before about you guys just staying together and not having an attitude about who's in the limelight. Because that's the hardest thing to do is to recognize when (laughs) when that drum part that somebody else played and it's not perfect works, you know? Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's um yeah, I mean I think for us the 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 mode is always what serves the song the best, what makes each song you know the the best. And if that means I don't play on that part then cool. You know like that, there's nothing wrong with that um and uh you know like there's a you know and and it's just it's it's giving each other space and trying to trying to be like the best version of a band that you can be and sometimes that means you know, maybe you're not involved.
0: <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> I mean, it takes so much confidence to recognize that though. I, I applaud that. That's fantastic. You know, I mean, there's so many, there's so many successful bands that are huge that, that don't, that still can't do that.
2: Yeah. You know? no, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And, you know, and it goes both ways, you know, like there was, um, we were, when we made we, our integrity blues album that we made, um, in 2016, uh, We were we took 2015 off, so we didn't have we did literally didn't do anything Jimmy World, and then we decided hey we're gonna make a record and we're gonna put it out, and our timeline was so short that Jim was like hey like I need some help like so if you have any melody ideas just lay them down you know like just throw them down so the there's a song on that album called Pretty Grids that Jim I, I I wrote the the chorus melody to it. And so, and Jim actually used it, which I was fucking shocked that he used it.
1: That's but awesome. I think
2: he was, yeah, he was like, yeah, I guess this works. I'll use it. You know? And, and uh, I don't know if he was just sort of like, okay, I'm over this song and I just want to finish it, but yeah. it turned out really cool. But it's like, I, I sort of felt like that's my, uh, you know, so it, it's sort of an example of him giving me the, you know, him giving me the license to contribute and, you know, in his territory and, um, and I think it's that makes it's made easier by the fact that, like, you know, I'm not precious about, oh, well, I need to write the drum part right. or anything like that. That's funny. I get asked the question, I'm like, hey, what, what, what about this drum beat? You know, like, I think someone asked me about the, the cautioners beat. And I was right. like, I think Jim, I think Jim came up with that. So, like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, um, which is fine. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. You know, to me, it's like I'm going to take that, I'm going to execute it, and and figure out the coolest way to to do it. You know? Sure.
1: But, well, and and also, I think once you start respecting somebody as a songwriter, you know, it's um, it's like what drums are you hearing in your head to execute the song as it's supposed to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, is, like do you guys ever have discussions like that? Like, uh, if if it's not as demoed and there's not a drum part, do you ever just ask like like, what's the vibe here? Like, what do you want this song to feel like?
2: Um, yeah. So Jim will almost all- never come up with a demo that doesn't have some kind of like rhythmic component to it. Okay. So, um, and usually he, the he question he programs that stuff. So he'll play it and then he beat detectives it. Oh, so wow. like he'll cool. he'll like play it on my kit in the studio and then he'll like arrange it kind of in its, you know, sometimes it sounds, um, he kind of makes it sound presentable and
1: he's a pretty advanced Um, engineer, right?
2: Oh, he's super, super advanced. Yeah. 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 Like he, he, he's a great engineer and a great producer and like, yeah, he, he, he literally needs no help doing any of that stuff. Um, so, uh, he he'll do that. To me, the the interesting moment where this becomes a problem for me is when he writes something that, um, you know, like it's like anything. Like when you write an idea and you have like the the first thing you kind of put down is the rhythm, sec- the rhythm part of the drums, and then you build on top of that. It's really hard to strip away that foundation and come up with something different that feels good. And right. um, but so but there are times where I'm like, you know. Uh, the part doesn't isn't good. The part doesn't make sense. The you know, and I need to change that, but I need to change it in a way that still fits with the overall vibe of the song. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's like that can sometimes you like you're almost trying to put a puzzle piece into a puzzle that's like not quite fitting in right. Yeah, sure. And um. And so that can be tricky and that can be creatively frustrating. Um, But, you know, more times than not, uh, it's like I make um, I can just make some adjustments or, um, you know, and the cool thing about with Jim, it's like and I've never I I can't imagine other songwriters are like this, but like (laughs) Jim will show us an idea. And he'll put down the drums and he'll put down everything. it will be like, okay, here's the song. And we'll say, or, you know, usually, um, usually it's me. I'll say, uh, (laughs) well, this, we need to do this. And like, is, you know, I have a totally radically different idea of what the song could be.
1: Right.
2: And Jim is just like, cool, let's try it. Like, he doesn't care. He's like, he's like, I, you know, he'll totally be like, I'm not precious with, Um, you know, cause I think a lot of times in that situation, the songwriter be like, well, you know, slow your roll, dude, you're just a drummer (laughs) and this is what we're doing. And, and, and Jim will just be like, yeah, let's try it. Cool. And then we'll try it. And then it'll be like, oh, that didn't work, but maybe, but there's something about that. That's really cool. Let me, let's try it this way, you know? And so he's, it's, it's like this really unique thing because, um, you know, when Jim writes a demo, he's so good at being a producer and envisioning layers and doing things that it's like it's so um it's so intricate. And there's like you you listen to it and you think to yourself, I think to myself, man, so many decisions have been made here.
1: Right, right. That that right.
2: will that that if we want to change it, we'll have to be unmade. <laughs> right, right, right. And 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 Jim is just kind of like over the years and, and, you know, we working together and making all these records with each other, he doesn't, he's like, okay, let's try something different. Wow. You know, and like, he doesn't, um.
0: He's not precious.
2: No, he's not precious with it. That's, he doesn't say huge. My Way of the Highway. So it that's, is. that's yeah. huge. Yeah. You it know, really and, and I think because, you know, because we're like that with each other. And allow and and we allow this give and take and for him from me and me from him and, and even the other guys and their ideas. Um, it just like it just it's a great way of leadership. It's a great way of like he's he's sort of allowing himself to like remove himself and 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 we can interact and be more of a part of it. And it just it grounds everyone into being a part of the band in a way that like is, I think. Uh, more meaningful and so when things come up like disagreements or whatever it's just not doesn't feel like a big of that big of a deal because we like we're all on the same team we're all trying to get the song to be the best it can be or we're all trying to get the tour to look and sound the best it can sound and you know be and and we i think that's just inherent vibe is there
1: man you desert people are so relaxed (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> got to, we got to, we got to reserve our energy, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I'm terribly jealous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not. I mean, it like it. It all of this makes it makes a lot. You know, the the question I asked the most like thirty minutes ago, like it makes it all makes sense now. Right. You know what I mean? Like how, you know, you, it took a while to get there, but we have exactly answered the question I asked on how Jimmy <laughs> World pulls it off. It's like right. pretty obvious, which is great. Um. So here is where I just get bored about songwriting, you know, because who cares, <laughs> sure. right? Um. This is a segment of the program, and I can't wait to do this one because Brad here is a, an IPA snob just like you,
2: Zach. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah.
1: So maybe you guys can go off on a little tangent after this. But this is a section of the program we call Mystery Friend. Now the point Myster- of this okay. yeah the point of this is I got a story from a mystery friend of yours. Okay. I'd like you to uh tell me about the story and then guess which mystery friend told me.
2: Okay yeah I can do that that's okay. that's fun.
1: Okay. So apparently uh again you're a big IPA drinker and you don't prefer a cheaper ale especially on tour. Um and I heard about a time that a bus that was on one of your tours banned IPAs and IPAs were not allowed <laughs> on the bus and something happened where you you were told you were told that you couldn't go on and then somehow still still bullied your way in as a member of the band.
2: <laughs> oh well yeah I'm not gonna let that stop me man. So uh, so what's
1: what's the story there? What you you got it. so you were banned from your own crew
2: bus? I, I might have been banned from my own crew bus, but I don't think it was like <laughs> uh i mean at least i didn't take it as like them being actually serious and i didn't really i mean as you can as you can tell by the story i didn't really honor that um (laughs) man who would that be um you need
0: to elaborate a little bit on this story so so what's the story fill in some Uh, fill in some color give us some give us some color well
2: i think here here's where the frustration is for for the most part when we're on tour um We're all like on the same bus. So we will travel with our band, with our crew on the same bus. So that's like 11 people sometimes Mm -hmm. on a 12, a 12 bunk bus. And, you know, there are limited, there are limited spaces in the coolers, you know, to have both the, the large variety of IPAs and the crew prefers more kind of like, you know, uh, they're happy, which is if it's Tecate, they're like, that's fine. Yeah.
0: Right.
2: Um, I just don't like, you know, uh, not that I, 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 I I don't even care like how expensive or not expensive the beer is. I just don't really like Pilsners or lagers all that much. Um, occasionally, like if it's really hot outside and you know, it's like on ice and, is refreshing then cool i'm down with that but like for the most part i stick to sort of ipas and um just hoppier beers okay so i think that when you have um and i'm probably the person in the band that drinks more beer than anyone else in the band okay. maybe me and me me and rick so you got um, to kind of but-
1: dictate the beer that's around when you're the biggest drinker uh,
2: yeah, a little, a little bit. But Rick, Rick, you know, also kind of, he's more of a ver- variety. He 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 enjoys kind of like all different beer varieties. So, um, and when we travel separately, um, the crew will order their own beer, and I will, you know, i we have just our own beer on our bus, and it's just kind of different. So, like, the worlds are no longer, uh, the worlds no longer collide. But I think that there's maybe some animosity from the crew. <laughs> and being limited in their space um, when we're together that I think when they don't have that limitation, they like to kind of rub my nose into it. I and see. so, but the, but the reality of it is, is like, I'm happy that they have the kind of beer that they like. I don't <laughs> have anything against that. And I don't know why I would need to be banned. Like, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to dictate what they can and can't drink. I'm just, you know, like I, but I, I can understand like when you're in a tight space with a lot of people and you don't, you know, you don't get the kind of, you know, selection that you like, then you know, it's that's kind of a drag.
1: Well I can see I can see where this comes together now because the story I was told was referring to when you were opening for Incubus. So I'm sure you had a little bit more cash floating around that tour and maybe added a crew bus. So so I think they may have been getting back at you, it sounds maybe by filling up the coolers with too many IPAs. Once they had their own space, they're like no no IPAs, you're not allowed on anymore. But I, the person who told me this, and I quote, said, Zach pushed his way past and starts questioning our rule. And I was quickly thrown under the bus as the one who made the rule. <laughs> Zach basically said, You can't enforce this rule on me. I'm technically your boss and paying for this bus. <laughs> <sighs>
2: I probably, I, I probably did say all of that. This yeah. was in a friendly way,
1: apparently not a negative yeah. Yeah. way. And then, and then they let you on the bus with, and, and I quote, your gross IPA. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I probably said all of that in a very joking manner. Yeah. Like I, I would, I would threaten that all the time. Like, Hey, listen, you work for me. asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Don't step to me. It was, you know, it was but, um,
1: noted to me in the email that that was a jovial part of it, not a serious that's good, part. That's
2: good, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, so, glad they t- I'm glad I'm glad they took it that way. I think everyone at at a certain point in time and like I think sometimes people who don't know me as well um uh don't really um like sometimes don't know that I'm joking. And my wife tells me this all the time is like, I'll say a joke and I'll be totally joking. Mm-hmm. And then I think she like whispered me like, I don't think they think you're joking. Yeah. Cause like the way I say it is not necessarily, I'm acting like I'm really saying it, but mm-hmm. I'm not. Oh, um, so, that but yeah. So then, yeah. Uh, but I'm glad that it was, it was received in the way that it was meant. And I, I literally have no idea. Um, I can try and guess, uh, uh, man, who was on that tour, um, that you would know. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I have no idea who that is. All right. Well, give me
1: one guess who would be the bus captain of the crew bus.
2: Uh, I would, the bus captain of the crew bus. And, and I'll give am- you
1: this hint too. I got an email from a name that I was very blown away by. It's not this person's real name.
2: Oh, man.
1: Uh... All right. It's fine. I got an email from a man named Thorns Capricorn.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thorns. That makes sense. Which
1: is apparently a real name. Thorns Capricorn His, what his I got yeah, the
2: email as. He's our merch guy, and okay. I think him being the captain of the crew bus is very generous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thorns, you lied to me,
2: <laughs> but you know, but you know, it's um, but that does make sense because I think Thorns, um, yeah, I, that makes sense. That makes sense to me now. That makes a lot of sense. Thorns is an awesome dude. Yeah, I love Thorns, he cool. he's a very very cool guy and a very hard worker and um that that's funny that's cool
1: and i don't actually know thorns i went through a friend of a friend to try to get your mystery friend i did a little work
2: that's good cuz i was trying to think like who would know you yeah but thorns but thorns makes sense cuz he's a you know he's a new york guy
1: oh okay that does make sense now this leads back to a long standing argument we've been having on this program me and brad here now brad a while ago told me that If I showed up to his house with a sixer,
0: oh, you
1: know, like, like, hey, buddy, I need to hang out. Let's have a drink, you know. And I showed up with a six or a beer that he would deny my beer and go to the fridge and grab one of his IPAs, which I just find really offensive.
2: What's your What's your opinion on that? So you're bringing over a beer for Brad to enjoy.
1: I'm bringing over a six pack. Like, hey, I'm your buddy. I showed up at your house. We need I need to have a couple beers with someone, you know? Right. I feel it's insulting to be like, oh no, no, no. Save your beer. I'm gonna go get my fancy one from the fridge.
2: I don't think that's insulting at all.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean I think that...
2: <laughs> so personally. You, I mean So you do the same. I would do the exact same.
0: <laughs> See, I told Benny, so yeah, I'm a dad now, and I'm also older probably than both of you guys and it's true you know i don't yeah there was a there was a time when i could put away like 2 6 packs and pretty much you know function but nowadays it's more like you know two beers a night so i need to you know i need to ration and i don't want to i don't want to fill that space with uh, an inferior product yeah
2: it's i i i think that's the, what you're what you're referring to i think is the idea that life is too short to drink shitty beer and <laughs> if if you know i would say i would say it's insulting that you're coming over to someone's house and you're not you're knowingly bringing them beer that you know they won't like it. wow
1: it's on me now
2: yeah it's on you like you should know your bro you should know your bud like hey if i have a friend like uh that you know doesn't like stouts i'm not going to bring over a bunch of stouts for him to like drink while we hang out
1: wow teamed up on by a couple ipa snobs this is rough
0: (laughs) this is rough (laughs) sorry benny (laughs) but i
2: but, but i do i do think like it's you know like for me i have um i i like I have the beer that I drink. I also have beer at my home that I don't drink and it's saved precisely for that moment where people come over. Right? Okay, here you go. You can have my garbage beer that I keep in the fridge in the backyard and then I'll have the good stuff.
0: Stock beer. So Zach, let me ask you something though, because uh, this is, I I started to notice this right about the time that my, uh, my cousin, who's definitely a Pilsner drinker of the uh, American variety um, had said, you know, I like an IPA but you know you, you got to be careful cuz it's hard to go back. And I thought about that because I was having that I was realizing that you know that yeah, I couldn't I couldn't go back from you get you get used to all that flavor and then even beers that I really enjoyed, you know, like like a, just even like a like an ale or something it was just not yeah. enough.
2: It it's true. Like I remember when I first kind of started drinking beer, I really kind of like, um, I sort of dug like more amber red ales. Uh huh. And, um, I can't do them. Like, I, I I, did, I, 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 I don't like those. I, I'd rather drink like a Coors Light than like <laughs> some amber ale.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those, it's weird. It's, I, it happened, to, like, it can happen with coffee, you know, like I think maybe Starbucks ruined me for, you know, I can't get a deli coffee, dude. Cause like, doesn't have enough flavor. It's kind of the same same vibe. I
1: don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just the, how I was raised as a bottom feeder. But <laughs> I'll drink shitty coffee, good coffee, shitty beer, good beer. It's just <laughs> it's just all it's you know. I'd prefer the good one, but if the other one's around,
0: yeah, you know. Well, your your life will definitely uh, be easier, Benny.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think that's a blessing, man. Like I'd I'd take that and run with it. You know, I mean, I. Uh, you know, listen, all beer is basically kind of a pretty similar price. Like if you, if you want to like, yeah, if you want to get the bud and the bud light, but I, like, do you, do you tell a difference between like, you know, like, would you, like if you, so someone had like a bud light and then they had like a local, local brewery that's actually making like a Pilsner or, uh, you know, um, you know, a uh, a lager or something like that, would you go for the, you, would you on purpose go for like the Bud Light or would you go for the nicer, maybe well-made product?
1: I would a thousand percent go for the well-made product. That I mean, that's yeah. the thing about this argument. I'm not going to sit here and make the argument that Bud Light isn't piss. Bud Light <laughs> is piss. It's cold beer piss. You know what I mean? And it's barely good, but I'd still drink it. If it's the only thing around, and if my friend, oh, don't get up me wrong,
0: it, you know? dude, I would drink it if it was the only thing around.
2: <laughs> See, I I don't know if I like if 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 I was like I, if I go to a place like you know like for instance like let's say good example like I sometimes go golfing and like you know the person with the cart comes around and like hey do you have any IPAs and they'll be like no but I have like some. Uh, you know, Bud Light, I have some Heineken, I have this, that. I'm like, I I I'm like, nope, I'm good. Wow. Oh, <laughs> you pass. Back. Hard pass. I pass. I pass. A
1: cold beer in the hot desert playing golf, and you pass. Wow.
2: Yeah, I pass. That's I'd rather shocking. just have like a water a water or something like that. Shocking.
1: Shocking news to me. <laughs> uh, speaking of the desert, there's one interesting thing uh about Mesa that I learned that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Now I didn't realize. You know, obviously there's a deep, rich history with Native Americans in your area. And apparently Mesa had the largest and most sophisticated canals in the prehistoric world that still exist in the city. And uh, apparently water could be delivered to over 110,000 acres in the Sonoran Desert, creating an agricultural oasis. Is there any remnants of that still left around?
2: Yeah, I don't know if there are any remnants of like the original uh, canals, but I I would imagine that because um, we do have like a canal system that goes through the whole entire metropolitan area, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's you know there's kind of like a sort of grid of canals that goes through the whole area, and so uh, it's possible that the some of some of that canal system was used. To you know, sort of base it on the newer version of it, right? But yeah, I mean, um,
1: well, for, yeah, from what I read, it, it is those
2: canals that exist in Mesa
1: are still some of the pre-existing canals from, or I mean, at yeah. least the you know based on the original structures. And the thing I want to finish on, you know, this is the last episode of the year. We'll be releasing on New Year's Eve, Um, and we just relaunched this year, so. You're on, You're standing on hallowed ground at the moment. Oh, seg. awesome! Yeah. thank
2: you. I I appreciate that. But
1: uh, so I wanted to see what, what's your prediction or outlook for 2021. What do you see for yourself? What do you see for the band and and maybe our our ever growing uh, morbid reality?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I think that for myself, um. I guess is whenever I talk about myself, it's kind of interrelated to the band as well. Um, uh, you know, I think we're going to really try to focus on writing some new material Okay. and, um, do some of that. And then, you know, I'm really hoping by like the end of the year, um, there's going to be some signs of life on the touring front. Um, but you know, I guess we'll just wait and see, see how it plays out and see if, uh, if it's safe and people feel comfortable enough to go to shows, but it would be great if, um, there's some sort of signs of life there.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and what about for you? You personally, what, what are you looking forward to this year?
2: Any, any big goals? Um, I haven't thought about it, to be honest. Um, really haven't thought about like personal goals. I guess I should start thinking about that right now. Well um, well, I think just like, you know, like, um, maybe, uh, it would be, you know, I'm kind of excited for the kids to be able to play sports, uh, a little bit more freely and more often. That would be nice. Um, I'm, uh, a father of two boys, so that would be fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, just like. I don't know, man, maybe lose a few pounds. You know. <laughs> maybe, maybe drink, you know, a little less coffee. I don't know. Sure. Maybe I need to start thinking about that.
1: I love that. Well, <laughs> looks like the Phoenix Suns might make the playoffs this year. So have fun with that.
2: Let's hope. Let's hope, yeah, man. Looking like it. All right,
1: Zach. Well, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you doing this.
2: My pleasure, man. Take care.
1: Thanks, Zach.
2: Awesome. Be good.
1: All right. look at that another ipa stop yeah (laughs) thank you just like you thank you yeah (laughs) now i'm feeling like trashy you know you guys are making me feel trashy (laughs) if i show up to either of your houses with a six pack of corona i'm gonna get i'm gonna get thrown under the bus
0: i'll drink a nice i'll drink a cold corona in the summertime that's not a problem.
1: See, that's my vibe. I mean, we keep talking about this with IPAs. It's like I have a very specific need for beer, right? I'm a scotch drinker. Right. So like when I'm trying to get, you know, I came from a drug world, not alcohol. Right? <laughs> so, like, So like alcohol to me, beer just takes way <laughs> too long. I need nearly instantaneous results. So I'm usually having a scotch, you know? Right. And the only time I really feel like a beer is when I'm like, when I'm thirsty. Right. It's, when it's, I want like a cold beer, refreshing beer. Yeah, I get it. So the it. idea of like a IPA milk stout coffee something or other, you <laughs> no, know what no. I mean? In the middle of that.
0: I'm like, ugh. You know, that's like the last thing uh, I want to taste right all now. All right. Next time we get together, I'll, I'll give you, there's some... There's a variety of IPAs. I'm really into this one that comes from Brooklyn now called Tiny Juicy IPA, and it's like—I like the name. It's—it's it's kind of a thirst quencher. It's kind of like almost like a cider IPA. It's really tasty. All
1: right, maybe you can sell me.
0: So I'll, I'll hook you up.
1: I have a question for you. Yeah, we've been doing these interviews for a while, right? And I'm always fascinated by bands like Jimmy World. Because, you know, being in a band is like this bizarre anthropological, sociological like experiment, even yeah. psychological experiment. Right. You know what I it mean? Like is. there's so many levels to it in that way. And there are so few people in the world who could even understand like being stuck in this small of a group and being forced to make decisions with each other for so long. Like. Seriously, the only other people who have to do shit like this are like the flight attendants and pilots and then like <laughs> military people. Like it's a very select group. So when I see someone like a band that's just 20 years of the same people, not an ounce of chatter, you know, outside of the band, like there's problems. Right. You know, like obviously like this mutual respect. I really am fascinated. I'm like, how? How does this happen? You know what I mean? And I want to collect as much information about that as possible because I think it's, like, useful knowledge for people oh. going
0: forward and trying to, like, do these bands. Oh, you know? absolutely. And and I think that was a great question. I think I told you this, but, you know, when I was in the Goops, we, we went t- to therapy. We went to a therapy session right. all together. Yeah. And it was because the communication had just completely broken down. And, like, I don't think that was a band where – I was going to be playing any drum parts in, you know what I mean? Like, right. It's just I, that degree of confidence just stuns me. But also it makes me realize that, yeah, that's, that's what it is, is that those guys, their confidence levels are higher than their ego levels. Right. That's the only way to explain it. So like, but they give that to each other. Yeah. But it's interesting. And, and as important as it is for bands to learn, like these secrets to success, like that's not going to help. And anyone, because that's a personality type. Like, these guys... Yeah, right. You know right. what I mean? Like, that yeah, it one... takes a certain... Yeah, that takes a certain type of person that, like... You could just hear it in the way he answered the questions. Like, he just, like... When you asked him about being the drummer and being... You know, know, the kind of the uh, the background guy he was. I like, felt like
1: such a fucking idiot.
0: No, but like that's, <laughs> it's totally natural to feel that way. Yeah, 98% yeah. of the people in the world are going to feel the way you do, man. And I was like, yo, the, I am weak. The fact that he couldn't, that <laughs> he, it almost is as though he couldn't identify with the question, which yeah, I was. Yeah, right. I know. Amazing. Yeah,
1: it was interesting.
0: Yeah, that's. It, which th- always,
1: it lends me to another thing, though, is like, can you think of an example? Of like a Jimmy Eat World type of scenario from people who are from our area, <laughs> no, <laughs> like people from the tri-state area. Seriously, is there a band that like came out of the tri-state area? I
0: feel like the Souls maybe they're the only uh-huh. band that I can think of that that I've ne- I've never witnessed like you know major internal sort of strife. They've
1: had a few drummers though, right? They're on their third drummer, right? But that is a pretty good example because those guys are family. Yeah. And that is family style.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Maybe Menzingers. Menzingers are from around here. They're pretty close to that. From our world, you know, this is where I'm drawing from. But it's like, I don't know. And I know, like, you know, maybe there is something like you take four people from broken homes. Your whole example of like dealing with conflict. Yeah. Uh, like there's a way out of conflict when you come from a broken home. Like there's always like I dealt with it in relationships, like my whole, like coming from a divorced family, you know, in your head, sure. It's always an option.
0: No, I think that that you
1: you, can always just split. So if you have like that, you know, at least that base there, it it could play a role too. I
0: think that observation was way more on point than what he acknowledged. I think you were right on with that because yeah because when you when you come from a place where people have learned to resolve issues among each other you learn how to do it i think and it's and it's even more so when you don't come from that place when you're like okay the way to avoid conflict is just to leave right you know and and i'm not to say that like you know that's i'm not trying to be judgmental of quote unquote broken homes because you know we all i mean i do i come from Divorced parents, and uh, yes,
1: we both do, Brad.
0: Yeah, so it's like, and it was <laughs> there was, you know, and and it was an amazingly healthy environment. Like in my case, like, right, um, my parents are friends to this day. They sometimes get together for holidays and stuff. But, uh, but, yeah, I think that I think that really has more to do with it than maybe he w- had acknowledged because that's all he knows, you know, like he doesn't, right, right. He, so I don't think he recognized that that could have as, have as much, um, impact on it as
1: it did. And maybe it's even less being about like the ability to resolve issues. Cause like anyone could adapt into that, but maybe more, uh, living through issues. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like watching people like have issues, but not going anywhere. Right. You know? Like, you have no choice but to resolve them if nobody's going to leave. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's pretty cool. I yeah. don't know. So we got into some interesting stuff. Good yeah. good interview. Good dude. Uh, Zach has his own podcast now talking about Phoenix area sports.
0: Yeah, burn in hell. Yeah, burning hell, man. <laughs> so if you're, like, interested in uh, Arizona sports teams, check it out. It's a good time to jump on to the
1: Phoenix Suns bandwagon. I predicted them to make the playoffs this season, so good time to jump on the Checking Suns
0: I mean, maybe you want to get there via his podcast. His socials are Hell A Z. and yeah, it's the Burnin Hell podcast. And Zach's personal uh, socials are at zlind76, at zlind 76 um and i think you can find jimmy world social yeah maybe own. you've heard of his group <laughs> <laughs> a big group big group oh and big shout out this week to tyler tyler who is our our uh big benefactor of the week on venmo mm-hmm. thanks man yeah i'm not gonna tell you what he gave but hey it's a healthy healthy two figures okay Ugh.
1: Mm. like it's a big tip my friend it's three fingers of glenn livet let's just say that (laughs) let's just say that at least so yeah i appreciate that we have the patreon oh and we're setting up the chat right this hopefully
0: we're gonna have a holiday chat so our patrons have been invited if you are a patron um keep an eye out for a message hopefully we'll have benny and me in a little chat Maybe we'll do like New Year's Day or something. I don't know. What when? When is a good time? I'll give you all the story of Hanukkah. There you go. We'll try to get that done before the weekend's over. Anybody who's interested in that, patreon.com slash going off track. Uh, you know, if you don't know what Patreon is, just go check it out. You can figure it out. Yeah. If you want to throw us a little tip, like, uh, well, if you want to throw us a huge tip like Tyler did, um or a little tip. We're happy with all of it. Go to Venmo dot com uh, slash off track. Off track is the username at Venmo. And we appreciate all of it. And uh we'll also just take a good review on iTunes, because you know yeah. that's cool too. Sexually explicit,
1: please. <laughs> Still no one no one wrote one. I'm very disappointed.
0: Or if you really love us and you just have nothing but time and no money, you can build Benny a Wikipedia page. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is the ultimate,
1: the ultimate version of altruism in this case. <laughs> I'd also like to finish this week, a bit of a somber note, but rest in peace to a guy named Pat Harrington. He's a young guy, a surfer who lived in Long Beach Island, who I met through uh, Mercy Union. I texted with him a little. He fought cancer for years. He's a very uh, inspiring guy. He went through the whole thing Super courageously with a lot of humility, and just before Christmas uh, uh-huh. passed away. So, I want to give a shout out to Pat Harrington and his family. Happy New Year for the
0: rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone,
1: enjoy. <laughs> Kiss your people. Yeah. Love y'all.